0: Good morning. I'm Roger Juan Maldonado, president of the New York City Bar Association, and I welcome all of you to, uh, and thank you for participating in this uh, very important program uh, entitled Sexual Harassment and the Law. Uh, Given what's, as anyone who either reads the newspaper or follows television, what's going on in society today, uh, today's program is of enormous importance uh, as members of the bar we have a duty to have a conversation amongst ourselves of what constitutes sexual harassment in the legal profession and what must be done to stop it and as lawyers we have an obligation to engage in a, the, the exact same exercise with our clients um, I think for far too long there has been a sense that if you don't talk about it, it's not seen, nothing needs to be done about it. Today's program is designed to do the exact opposite, to to bring to bear a lot of focus on issues that must be dealt with, and then hopefully you leave today with an understanding of exactly how to go about dealing with these very complex and difficult issues. I give special thanks, and I I was asked to keep my remarks very brief because you have a a packed agenda. I give special thanks to uh, Mira Kurzer and Melissa Lee, the co-chairs of the City Bar's Sex and Law Committee, for putting today's program together. Um, I I, I want you to know that you will be hearing today from Carmelin Milalis, who was the Commissioner of the New York City Human Rights Commission. And who uh, actually has done an awful lot to revitalize that agency. She will be speaking after this morning's panel. Um, I would normally, in introducing her, just really focus on the fact that we are particularly proud of her, not just for the work that she's doing as commissioner and the work that she did as an advocate for many years on behalf of employees' rights, but because she also has served as a member of our executive committee here And has uh, chaired our LGBT committee. Um, So, with that, I would like to introduce the next person to begin the panel. And please, I hope today's session is very productive, very energizing. Take care. Good
1: morning. My name is Cynthia Lowen. Can you tell me are the mics on? No. I may have to push it. Oh, wow! Look at that. Okay. We're we're on a real upward trajectory already. Um, My name is Cynthia Lowen and I am a documentary filmmaker and the director of a film called Netizens, about women and online harassment that uh, just uh, came out recently at Tribeca and also uh, the film, I'm a producer of the film Bully, which came out a few years ago. And I will be moderating this uh, fantastic panel. Um, So I'm going to first introduce everyone, and I would encourage you to look in your guides for um, more in-depth biographies of all the incredible work um, that the women sitting up here with me today have done. Um, Carrie Goldberg is a victim rights attorney based in Brooklyn. Her law firm, Sia Goldberg PLLC, fights for victims of sexual assault, blackmail, and stalking online and off. Andrea Johnson is a senior counsel for state policy at the National Women's Law Center, which houses the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund. S. Janine Conley is a trial lawyer and shareholder shareholder at Little Mendelssohn, representing a wide array of companies, both global and domestic, in employment-related disputes and workplace investigations. LaDonna Powell has had a career in the security and law enforcement industry for over nine years. After experiencing severe harassment at JFK while working as a security guard, LaDonna has come forward in hopes that it inspires other women without a red carpet and Golden Globe to feel safe to speak out for their experiences of sexual harassment. And Elizabeth S. Saylor is a partner at Emory, Chelly, Brinkerhoff and Abadi LLP and has litigated civil rights and commercial matters for over 15 years and has extensive class action experience so this morning um you know i think we all have have experienced a watershed moment um, in the past year and in the past several months and i wanted to open by looking at what has happened in terms of the me too movement and the time's up movement in experiencing and witnessing the power of story to catalyze change and so for starters i wanted to, to open up by asking each of the attorneys sitting at the table, how at this really kind of unique moment in time, how have your practices been impacted by the Me Too and Time's Up movements? And you can sort of jump in as you feel inspired.
2: (laughs) Hi, I'm Janine Conley, and um, as mentioned, I am defense counsel at um, a firm called littler Mendelssohn. Um, I have definitely seen a change um, uh, in uh, in light of the Me Too movement, and for me in particular, um, I've seen a definite increase um, in the number of cases that I have um, involving sexual harassment and the reporting um, that has gone on in a lot of companies. And <clears throat> Rightly so, we're in a time where women um, in particular and some men, but predominantly women, are feeling more empowered and emboldened um, to speak up. I think a 2015 survey of women, um, one in four women between the ages of 25 to 34, said that they had um, been sexually harassed at work, and it was less than 50% of them that had actually reported it. I think that's very different today. And it has, I it calls it definitely an increase um, in the caseload, probably one in every three cases that I have right now sexual harassment, even though I do. Um, was whistleblower retaliation cases and non-compete trade secrets and a a lot of um, different um, types of uh, employment litigation cases, Um, but there, um, as I mentioned, has definitely been an uptick. Along with that, um, a lot of my clients uh, recognizing uh, the situation, and I think that we'll talk about this a little more going forward, are definitely starting to invest more in training. Um, You had clients, you had companies that were doing sexual harassment training, um, but not a lot of people were measuring the effectiveness of that training. And now you see companies really focusing on training that will impact the culture of the company um, and that are trying to adopt a no-pass type of culture. Um, amongst their company. So they're talking more about civility what respect looks like in the workplace um, and asking more questions um, that are more interactive uh, amongst um, their employees um, instead of having just your basic, this is what sexual harassment is, um, this is what it entails, this is where you can report, um, but investing more time, energy and effort um, in those types of trainings, looking at employee handbooks to make sure that um, um, in the handbook sexual harassment and sexual assault are mentioned in areas of electronic communications or social media which is aware a lot of sexual harassment issues sometimes occur um, and also doing a lot of one-on-one coachings with higher-level executives, um, which I've seen a shift in um, individuals' willingness to even go through those coachings um, in my practice over the years. Um, So it definitely has impacted um, the practice of law, um, has impacted culture. You have clients who wonder, you know, is the Me Too movement a fad? And I explain very clearly, no, it is not a fad. This is a huge cultural shift in companies and in some industries um, with regards to um, sexual harassment claims.
3: Um. So uh, from the perspective as a victim's rights lawyer, um, my practice has been somewhat impacted. I've, I've been fighting against powerful defendants and, and pervs since the firm was created, and Time's Up hasn't cr- changed that. Um, but the defendants have changed. Uh, the def- defendants have become much more high profile. The thirst in the media has has also changed. Um, suddenly, the media wants to report on these, these cases. And when I first started my practice, uh, the the media was, um, I mean, they do, did not want to use the word sexual assault or rape in any stories ever. Um, but I, I think also it's just like everybody's watching now. And one of the things um, that I've noticed is that this is a historic moment not just for um, victims and uh, Victims' rights lawyers and and employment lawyers, but but it's also a historic moment in some ways for the the other side, the de, like the criminal defense attorneys, who now may use Times Up as a defense and and might say things like um, their client is being tried by a movement or that um, the criminal case is the result of pressure from a movement and. That's something that hasn't played out yet, but, um, you know, as as cases move forward, it it well could. Uh, Two other ways it's changed is that um, the statute of limitations has become a bigger problem because uh, people are coming to me and and their assaults maybe happened 20 years ago instead of, like, in the past it's been um, pretty, the, the assaults or the harassment's usually pretty recent when they come to me. And so the the tools that we have available are different. And then finally, just the shame is is completely different. And I think it's really being cracked away. I was at a talk on Friday to like 700 college-age students. And after it, there was this like little dessert reception. And it was really amazing how many students came up to me and just were really open about their own... um, Really traumatic experiences, and that never would, i mean that never happened before, and so I think people just they 're not ashamed anymore, and the shame has shifted yeah.
4: great so I can say at the national women 's Law Center, it has been a whirlwind a uh, few months, so the national women 's law Center we 're located in d c and we 've been working for forty five years to Advance and protect, protect women, women's and girls' uh, equality and opportunity. And we're, we work on championing policies and laws that help women and girls um, achieve their potential throughout their lives. So that means at school, at work, uh, at home, and in their communities. And we work through the courts, uh, we do litigation, we do some impact litigation. Um, we also work through state and federal legislatures to advance policies, and that's a lot of the work that I do a senior counsel for state policy Um, and I'll say on the policy side we've seen a dramatic increase of federal and state legislators reaching out to us and wanting to do something to really um, harness the energy of this Me Too movement to strengthen our sexual harassment laws because there are so many gaps in those laws. They don't cover a lot of people that are the most vulnerable, and it's really exciting to see legislators stepping up and say, we want to make change. Um, we want to, to help, and what can we do? Um, and I brought a few resources with that that have sort of a list of policy recommendations in that space, but we've also seen a dramatic increase in our intakes. Um, uh, you know, before Me Too happened, I think we would get maybe twenty, thirty intakes a month. Um, and since January first, when uh, we started the Times Up Legal Defense Fund, we have uh, received two thousand seven hundred intakes uh, from all fifty states and D.C. So, folks seeking legal assistance, um, and that's just a dramatic increase. Um, I'll talk more later about the the Times Up Legal Defense Fund, um, but it's it's been yeah a whirlwind moment. Um, intense and, and you know working with policymakers to make sure that the change that we're putting in place is thoughtful um, doesn't have negative un- unintended consequences cuz that's often a concern in this moment when so much you know people are trying to capitalize on this moment um, to make change
5: um, since the times up movement i've definitely seen a lot more women that are willing to come forward and companies that take the harassment much more seriously but Despite that, I've seen for women that work at smaller companies, companies that aren't able to make, that aren't going to make the news probably, and women that are running paycheck to paycheck, there's still a lot of hesitancy to come forward because they can't afford to miss one paycheck during the time it takes to litigate a case or even during the time that it takes to settle a case pre-filing. So I think the Time's Up movement and other efforts to help low-income women, women that aren't gonna make the press because of their story is critically important because while women are a lot more likely to come forward now and a lot more willing to even speak to the press, there is still a lot of hesitancy, particularly as I said, among low income women.
1: Um, so, both Elizabeth and Carrie, you both touched on, um, I think, this new willingness and um, enthusiasm for members of the media to um, take on these stories about sexual assault, sexual harassment, and um, just massive gender situations of of gender inequality and discrimination. And I'm wondering within the sort of the media being willing to to embrace these stories more, has your strategy around um, speaking with members of the media really shifted in terms of your strategy and at what point you might be um, open to talking to members of the media where perhaps previously um, you might want to hold off until after, you know, something was kind of, had come to a conclusion or had been wrapped up in a way. So I'm wondering, um, for, for all of the attorneys at the table, if you can talk a little bit about how has, how, how is the media um, sort of working into your strategy in these cases um, as I think things are really rapidly shifting?
3: So, it's, it's, so, it's such a complicated situation with, with the media because, um, you know, and it's, it really depends on whether it's a civil case you're working on or a, a criminal case because, I mean, all these, so many of these cases, like they, the media wants there to be press conferences and they want to hear from the, the victims and, and the lawyers and um, it's not pr- appropriate. Um, uh, 99.9% of the time um, it's not appropriate when your client is going through the biggest like storm of hell they've ever faced for them to also then have to be thrust into the media and lose their anonymity and um, and even make that decision when when they're in a moment of trauma because uh, that's not the best time to, to make a decision or nor, nor should we be making that decision for them um, but, on the other hand, it's, it's difficult because you want the stories to be accurate. And so, if, this, if the narrative is being told by someone else, by opposing counsel, or uh, based on rumor and speculation, then there's, I mean, that's a really big problem. And so, so we also just kind of need to make sure that, that it's accurate, and sometimes our voice is the only way for that to happen.
4: Um, So I'll say that the media has been, um, I mean, as you mentioned, a large part of the reason we've seen so many people coming forward Uh, To to share their story and it's made a big difference and you know we hear from women who say you know I'm sitting at home kind of deciding whether or not to call a times up legal defense fund and then I heard Gretchen Carlson's story or I heard uh, the Harvey Weinstein Weinstein survivors speak up and I decided you know I could and and the media has been highlighting these stories and the fact that our employers are increasingly responding and actually holding harassers accountable and highlighting those stories has shown women that they're being believed in a way that they weren't before. Um, and women see themselves in these stories, and they they feel less alone, and they feel more empowered to to take action like others are doing. But I think it's important to highlight that um, there are voices that we're only just beginning to hear uh, about in the media. For example, stories from the disability community and the harassment being faced there, or um, immigrant community, and, and folks who don't speak English as a first language. And it's all the more important that women of color, LGBTQ folks, uh, immigrant stories, low-wage worker stories that they are being highlighted in the media so that these folks can see themselves as well um, in the people coming forward and that they can feel like they have a community behind them and that they can seek help. And so the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund has now started a series of um, outreach grants, uh, which I can speak about later, to help make sure that folks in the low-wage worker community, um, immigrant community, are hearing about the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund, uh, that they can seek help, and they're hearing from their community members that they trust about this information. And so that's really important. And I'll just add also on the policy side, we're seeing that the media can really help broaden the impact of uh, both legal cases and policy change and and talking about there a lot of movement right um, with uh, in October around non disclosure agreements and policies around that, and a lot of attention around that, a lot of tension around forced arbitration as well as the area of policy change and you know maybe one or two states are working on that, um, or there 's one bill in congress, but there 's been a lot of media attention around that, and now we 're starting to see companies speaking up and voluntarily changing their policies in those realms and I think um, the media has a large role to play in make, making that happen. Ginny? Um Obviously, from my
2: standpoint, obviously, from, from my standpoint and most of my clients' standpoint, in terms of strategy related to media, it's to stay out of the media. Um, and so, um, <laughs> One thing, though, that we have been focusing on with clients, with those that are defense counsel, is not waiting till the house is burning down to really get on top of um, press releases and um, having, um, you know, thinking about that um, prior to um, something actually happening. Um, and I, I agree with Elizabeth. A lot of smaller companies... Um, Actually, feel like they don't necessarily have the resources um, to deal with that, and I think your point was a little different. But in terms of the smaller companies, um, some of them don't have the resources to deal with that. But we um, have seen those companies still end up in the media, and they're not quite sure how to react and how to, how to actually deal with that. Um, so a lot of what I have helped my clients do is to really calm down. Take a step back because you really need to think about what those um, what situations you do want to respond to, and what situations you don't. And that's a you know a big consideration um, whether to respond or not um, that companies need to be making. Um, and once you do decide to respond, making sure that you have a very well crafted um, message that you are um, getting out there. So um, my strategy is. Is generally around let's prepare and make sure that we're prepared um, for things that do end up in the media um, and really taking the time to really think through Um, once um, you do end up in the media. And I will say that one thing that I've seen that has been quite interesting that I think, you know, Carrie mentioned as well, is claims coming um, that happened years ago and how to address those. And I think it's so important um, for companies to address those, not just because um, they are years old not to even take those into account. And one of the reasons you have to think about that is because it could also end up in the media as well. So the media attention, I think, has definitely had an impact and um, has significantly had an impact, I think, with with, with regards to the legislation that, that has come out. And we've had to really um, uh, educate our clients on that as well.
5: The Me Too movement has taught us the real importance of the media. I think the media attention has changed uh, how people look at sexual harassment more than years of litigation have. Uh, the litigation obviously is very critical, and the litigation often helps move the press and is, creates a press story. But I, I think we need to think more about how to use media, when it's safe to use media, You know, it's obviously very dangerous to have your clients speak at length when there's ongoing litigation. You know, they're going to be later questioned on anything they say, any small inconsistency. And obviously, as Carrie spoke about, people often are going through large trauma at this time. Often I see a lot of people with severe mental health issues going on, and so putting them before the media is not – going to be a good idea. But for women if, that are comfortable, if you speak to them, if you explain the real consequences of going to the media, then I think it p- can be very powerful. Uh, one example I have is uh, my client, who's wonderful client, LaDonna Powell, who's here. Um, and she came to me and was talking about her experience working at JFK for Allied Security, which is the largest security company in the country. And the Severe harassment that she faced there. And one of the first things I said to her is, you know, what we usually do is we write a detailed demand letter and we send it to the other side. And these cases are usually settled out of court in mediation without ever seeing the light of day. And what she said to me is, but then is the culture going to change? What she, what LaDonna really wanted was to change what was going on at JFK. And given that that was her um, goal and that, and after talking to her at length, she decided to speak publicly and when we filed she went on the local news and as a result of that we got dozens of people that came forward that also had experienced harassment at JFK. So. The, her speaking up helped the case in that way, and that we got a lot of witnesses from that. Uh, also, the Port Authority, which is the, the client for Allied, started its own independent investigation of this, which ultimately, it took seven months, led to the termination or transfer of all the uh, supervisors at JFK at that time. Um, so I, I think LaDonna's willingness to talk to the press. Made, has made a huge difference. And I urge everyone um, to listen to last week's This American Life. They did an hour special on LaDonna and how she tried to change the culture at JFK from within, and then when that failed through a lawsuit. And I think LaDonna is now going to tell us you know, briefly about her story and why she decided to go to the media and how she fought back. Hello, everyone.
6: My name is LaDonna Powell. Um, I think what's most important is, from my point of view of being a plaintiff, is just for attorneys to understand how hard it is. And already what what I've been through is already hard. And every day for me, when I went to work, I would literally pray in the car. I would sit in my car and pray before going inside because I never knew what the day was going to be like. I was restricted from going to the bathroom, um, I had to pee in cups most days just for speaking up. There were incidents where the male supervisors would come inside of the booth I was working because we work in a remote area and ask me to undo my jacket and they wanted to take a, well he wanted to take a photo of me. And when I explained to him that I was aware that was not a part of his duties, um, anything he was supposed to be asking me as far as open my coat and turn around for him, he told me that I will always talk up and I need to learn not to make it hard for myself. Sorry. Um, it's hard to continuously talk about it, but it's important, so I, I deal with it because it's not just about myself but it's about the next LaDonna, the next woman at the same place that's going through what I went through. It's about the young lady in Minnesota who wrote me on Facebook saying she's thankful that I spoke up because now she feels like she can speak up. It's important not to shame them when they come forward so they're comfortable about talking. I endured being called a nigger on many bases at work just for asking a question and being told you niggers don't understand. It's this kind of conduct I dealt with every day. I wrote a formal complaint. I hand-delivered it to human resources and to management. Nothing was done. I was told, you know how he is. We'll talk to him. It was basically like the good old boys club. Everyone's friends, and I'm on the outside looking in, being treated and objectified by them. I would come in and then I started hearing stories from the other workers and it's not, it was like I could kind of take them doing it to me. You know, I started thinking that, you know, you're tough, talk back, curse them out, write him up, write him up, nothing gets done. Where do I go from here? What do I do? I start elevating myself. I start reading, educating myself. I end up getting a promotion and I end up, what I like to call it, the lion's den, working directly next to the man who was objectifying me and degrading me daily. And I thought it would get better because I elevated myself, but it didn't get better. It actually got worse. And I kept thinking, like I tell everyone, everyone has a boss, and now his boss was gonna see me as his equal, and it didn't work that way. His boss was one of my main offenders, and he would make comments about my body and, sorry, I'm sorry he would make comments about my body he would tell me oh you have nice lips brush against me and push into me when he was going past me onto the copy machine and even after I lost it on him and I put him in his place and I told him not to touch me he then would make jokes about him not touching me, like, oh, I'm, I'm close, but I'm not close enough. Am I touching you? As if it's a joke, as if my body was something that he can just play with whenever he decided to. Nothing was done about any of this. And then I started training classes. I was promoted again, and I started training classes, and the employees were telling me their stories of being called a nigger, their stories of the men staring at them, and I would hear the men supervisors, I would be in the office with them while they were watching videos of the young ladies that work there performing oral on the men that work there and they would be passing the videos around and they would ask me, do you know how to suck a dick like this? Do you know how to do this, Powell? And I would always curse them and I would walk away but it was always just this feeling, this dark cloud like I would cry in the bathroom. I didn't know What to do? It's like after you complain the first time and you hope human resources would do something, nothing was done. An anonymous letter even went out to management, to corporate, to the client, to Port Authority, just saying, this is what's happening here. These men are objectifying these women. People are having sex. This is what's going on. The airport is not being protected properly. And nothing came of it. Instead they retaliated against the employee who they thought wrote the letter. So it just felt like the ceiling was closing down on me everywhere that I turned as far as writing a report. Coming forward, you speak up and then you retaliate against. I would hear them doing things to the other workers, the same thing they did to me, not letting them go to the bathroom, no bathroom breaks or lunch breaks just because they talk up. It was very hard, but I know that we are still in litigation and the media is a tool because it's important. It's important for these women to understand that they should be able to speak up.
1: Thank you you so much, LaDonna. I think that this, um, that LaDonna's statement really leads into this question of, you know, when there is such a massive breakdown in all the systems that are supposed to protect employees from harassment and discrimination, um, when all the channels are gone through that are supposed to provide safety. Um, And yet the people who are trying to protect themselves and protect other people in their workplaces and in their environments are then targeted. What is the role of the legal community in addressing this deep systemic cultural issue that is absolutely... Um, permeating our workplaces, our communities, our schools, our environments offline, and our environments online. Um, And so I wanted to start with um, Andrea asking you a little bit about the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund. And I'm wondering if you can just tell us a little bit more um, about what it is, what are the goals, um, how are you seeking to achieve them, Um, and, and talking about some of the challenges in taking on Really massive corporate giants like Walmart. I think is one of the the first um, big, big cases, cases that that you're you're going going for. Um, so, if you can just tell us a little bit about about what it is and, and you know what lies ahead when you're going up against a company with just just so much money behind them.
4: Yeah. So, I want to start by thanking uh, Ladonna Powell for sharing her story. It's because of the bravery of women like you that the Times of Legal Defense Fund was started. Um, I'll just take a step back quickly and say that uh, a lot of this actually started in October of last year um, after the new administration came in, and we quickly started seeing extensive and unprecedented attacks on women's rights. And at the same time, it wasn't clear how agencies responsible for enforcing our civil rights would be uh, interpreting them or if they'd be enforcing them. So we realized that it was really more important than ever to have a mechanism that would connect individuals seeking to enforce their civil rights with the private bar. And so actually, in October of uh, last year, the National Women's Law Center launched, launched what we call the Legal Network for Gender Equity to help connect individuals who are experiencing sex discrimination on the job, at school, and in the healthcare system with legal information and attorneys willing to take on these types of cases. And I have left some information out in the hall um, about the legal network. And just quickly, the attorneys participating in the legal network agreed to provide an initial pro bono consultation to individuals seeking legal assistance um, to whom we provide an attorney's name and contact information. And then some participating attorneys have agreed to provide, to take on cases pro bono or for a reduced fee, um, although that is not a requirement to join the network. So the the legal network um, is something that's been going on since October, and it provided the foundation for when the Me Too movement really picked up. Uh, for the Times Up Legal Defense Fund, and and you might be aware that the Times Up started when um, uh, the Alliance of Farmworker Women sent a public letter to uh, Hollywood actors who were speaking up about Harvey Weinstein and said, you know, dear sisters, we hear you. We know what you're experiencing uh, because we've experienced the same thing. Uh, They spoke about um, they do a pow- powerful connection between rape in the fields um, and the sexual harassment experienced by so many low-wage workers with the excuse, uh, abuse experienced by Hollywood actors, and from that connection um, and from those brave women sharing their stories, the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund was created, and it's housed um, at the Law Center, and as I mentioned before, it's only been um, in place since January of this year, but we've raised over $21 million to that fund, and the fund connects those who've experienced sexual misconduct, including assault, harassment, abuse, and related retaliation, uh, in the workplace, so it's limited to the workplace, um, or folks that are trying to advance their careers, and it connects them with legal assistance from the Legal Network for Gender Equity and also public relations assistance, because as we've been talking about the media plays such an important role um, in uh, responding to sexual harassment in many cases. So the fund will help defray uh, legal and PR costs in many of these cases, and the, the goals of the fund, um, you know, it's for women in, or for people in all types of industries um, and making sure that they can be connected with lawyers regardless of industry, rank, or role. And we really hope to send a message to employers that it's not just because a woman just because a woman doesn't have a lot of money or connections, that doesn't mean someone isn't going to stand up for her. There are attorneys that will be there and that will be getting uh, financial assistance so that they can take on cases, and we want to make sure that uh, representation is enabled in cases that would um, not otherwise be taken on by attorneys, at beca- attorneys because the client can't afford to pay, or it's, there's not a realistic prospect of recovery of fees, or the, the valuation of the case would be low. Um, so that funding is there to help make sure that attorneys can take on these cases, and we're really. As I mentioned, it's just for folks in, in all industries, um, all income levels, but we're really focusing on low-income women and people of color, and two-thirds of our intakes thus far have been um, from people who identify as, or self-identify as low-income. One-third have been from people of color, and about 10% are from LGBTQ people. Um, And I just want to run through a little bit the the priorities that we're focusing on in this funding, and all this information is on our website uh, for attorneys who are interested in both joining the legal network for gender equity and then um, potentially applying for funding. And so the fund prioritizes women who were fired after reporting sexual harassment, low wage workers, and domestic workers who have experienced sexual harassment, sexual violence, and egregious retaliation. Um, there's a focus on women in male-dominated occupations, just recognizing that uh, that type of harassment um, reinforces gender segregation within our, our workforce. Um, also, women who are facing defamation suits or the threat of lawsuits from high-profile harassers, um, uh, and harassment involving multiple individuals within one workplace, just recognizing that, that can, um, focusing on those types of cases can have a larger impact. Um, women who are blacklisted in their industry after reporting harassment, that's also a priority. And we're also looking for matters that have the potential to establish important precedent or advance novel legal issues. And while this is not a separate priority, we are also looking throughout all of these cases um, for those who are experiencing intersecting forms of harassment. So uh, harassment based on your sex and race, or your sex and disability, immigration status, LGBTQ, LGBTQ status, because those folks are most vulnerable to workplace harassment. Um, so those are sort of the goals of the, the fund, the types of cases that we're trying to make happen um, that would not otherwise not happen. And as you mentioned, some of the first cases that we have funded, so the, 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 the Times Up Legal Defense Fund is not itself taking on these cases, but providing funding um, to attorneys taking on cases and some of the first cases uh, to receive funding um, have been against Walmart and McDonald's which is very exciting um, that these attorneys are challenging these corporations because they are standard setting across the industry. Uh, Walmart is one of the largest employers in the country and um, uh, I mean both both companies represent the low-wage workforce which we know is two-thirds of the low-wage workforce um, is women and so you know so they employ so many people Uh, a lot of these folks are making very low wages Uh, they're dealing with unpredictable schedules getting few hours which makes it them more vulnerable to harassment and also makes it so much more difficult for them to access legal representation Um, and they're also very well resourced uh, corporations so providing this funding through the the times up legal defense fund it's important to to help level to some extent the the playing field and uh, one thing that is exciting for the Law Center is we work at a few intersections. So we understand the importance of legal cases, but we also understand the the power of organizing and policy work. So in the example of Walmart, we were, we were, we were able to connect um, the the person who reached out, the employee from Walmart who reached out, not only to attorneys through the Legal Network for Gender Equity, but also to workers' rights groups to provide them with further support, um, both with their individual situation, but also helping kind of organize the campaign to change the policy at Walmart. So that's really important um, kind of cross-cutting work that we're doing.
1: Thank you. Um, LaDonna, I'm wondering if you could share with us from your perspective What do employers need to know right now in terms of workplace policy and culture? Like, what should they be hearing? And I think um, on the flip side of that, what do attorneys need to hear from someone who is going through this? Um, And kind of what were you hoping to hear when you started working with Elizabeth um, as you were taking this really big step to move forward? In your case?
6: I think with my employer, the biggest thing that was missing that I did get when I went to meet with Elizabeth was a form, a feeling of trust and security. Um, after coming forward initially and human resources not doing anything, I lost trust in the company and what they were going to do for me and what, when I was hired, they told me they would do for me. That this was a sexual free harassment free zone for me, be able to come to work and not be discriminated against or sexually harassed and they fell short of that after I reported the initial time and nothing was done. So when I went and I actually didn't go out looking for an attorney initially, someone asked me to speak on their behalf in their unemployment case and after speaking on their behalf their lawyer said, you know, you, can't, you have a case here. And, was, and spoke to me and then referred me to someone else who referred me to Elizabeth. And initially meeting Elizabeth, like I was telling her earlier, the room went quiet for me. Because even though you're at work, I'm still in the moment of dealing with something. And it's already hard for me, being strong every day, taking care of my family, to then have to identify myself as a victim. It's hard to say this happened to me. And I had to come to terms with that. And the minute she started talking, she helped me through that. She gave me um, security. I was able to trust her. She asked me the important questions of, "What do you want from this? Where do you want to go? Which way do you want to go?" And she broke down to me the process. We will send a letter. this will happen. you know but the culture wouldn't change if I didn't do it this way. Those men would still be working there if I signed an NDA. If I took money under the table and just walked away, there would be five more LaDonna's after me, the same way there were 11 women before me. So I just didn't want anyone else to be subjected to this kind of hostile work environment. So Elizabeth, um, she answered all of my questions, and as this is ongoing, she still helps me through it daily. When I can't speak, she is my voice. Thank you so much. Um, so time time is
1: totally flown. I feel like we can we have enough to talk about for another hour. Um, but in closing, I was wondering if um, each person can just share one piece of advice that they have for the attorneys in the room who are um, either taking on these cases, considering these cases, or who are grappling with, you know, what do I do right now in this really unique moment in time to really, um, you know, take advantage of these opportunities to, um, to really engage with, um, I think, a really important transformation that we're witnessing in our culture.
3: As attorneys, we're not just advocates, but we're also judges, and we need to be judging one another and making sure that we are all behaving ethically, and we need to not tolerate and we need to actually expose attorneys who are using their platforms and their privilege of being an attorney to, for instance, hire private investigators that stalk, threaten um, and intimidate victims. and. Um, attorneys that plant lies in the media. Attorneys that um, uh, th- th- create like crazy draft complaints that they're going to actually sue the victim if if the victim comes out. And we need to be reporting those types of companies, reporting companies or law firms, and not working there. Uh, you know, like if if if. He, you know if if boy shiller is hiring unethical pis like like black cube every i mean that's really shameful and we all need to stand up and 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 you know demand that that be different and put in disciplinary claims when when somebody is behaving unethically
1: thank you
4: so my advice i'm going to try group a few things into one, um, would be to sign up for the National Women's Law Center Legal Network for Gender Equity. Um, and as I mentioned, the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund, which is a piece of that, is a um, uh, starting uh, application process for outreach grants that would um, go to nonprofits who can let workers know how to connect to the Times Up Legal Defense Fund and help them know their rights um, and be supported during, during the process of finding representation. So if you know of nonprofits that would be good for that um, uh, type of work, uh, outreach grants are available, and that application is on our website now. And then as a policy person, I just want to put a plug in for advocating for policy change in your states or in your city. Um, State legislatures are really leading in this space, and and cities as well, quite frankly. New York City is very much leading in this space, Um, and it's so important for legislators to hear from attorneys who are actually litigating these cases, and you can speak in a very direct way to the gaps in the law, Um, how, you know, you're not able to... To uh, get justice for certain clients because they just aren't covered by sexual harassment laws. Um, there's a big push to make sure that um, all employers are covered by sexual harassment laws. You know, not just with federal law, 15 or more employees. Um, employers make sure that independent contractors are covered. Uh, things to that extent. Talking about NDAs and or forced arbitration and what that means um, to you and. Uh, um, you know, so many uh, re- retaliation. There's also a move to strengthen a retaliation laws. And so, being able to tell those stories of how your clients have been affected and how the law is not sufficient or, or needs to be modified in some way is so important to creating that change. I put a plug in for getting involved in policy change as well.
1: Thank you.
2: For me as a defense counsel, I think that um, it has really pre- presented the Me Too movement a real opportunity and um, I feel very fortunate to have actually worked with a lot of clients who do want to significantly change the culture. And I think this um, this time period creates a real opportunity for you that are defense counsel who are working on the inside, who are working with employers, um, to have the opportunity to um, really provide advice and counsel um, that helps companies to do exactly that, that helps companies um, to allow for women or men um, who do want to come forward, who do seek to uh, report internally, recognizing that if you don't create that safe space, if you don't create that environment, you can get sued. Um, and that it's important um, on so many different levels um, for your employees. This has created an opportunity to even uh, to address all issues. Um, as LaDonna was mentioning, even race discrimination, while we're talking about sex discrimination, And it's our responsibility as defense counsel to understand the laws that are being put in place, and there are a lot. And uh, New York State um, just enacted a number of laws, and it's important that our clients understand those laws, are complying with those laws, and so I think it presents a a real opportunity and um, I felt fortunate to be able to to work with a lot of clients who really are changing um, internally um, their processes and structures.
5: My main piece of advice is, um, as LaDonna said, when a client comes to you to speak with them and find out what their goals are. For some clients like LaDonna, the goal, and they're able to fight the system by going public and telling their story and litigating. But for a lot of clients that's not an option either because of their mental health, because of their financial insecurity, or other reasons that they don't want to go to the media, they don't want to litigate, they actually want to get on with their life and for them having a quick settlement even if it means signing an NDA often because they do sign the NDA they're able to get more money than if they litigated and even if a jury came. So while I have a lot of concerns with cases being hidden and things not coming forward, I think, you know, for your individual client, it's up to them. What do they want? If they're going to sign an NDA, you need to speak to them about what that means. Um, but it's very hard to settle these cases pre-suit if you're not willing to sign an NDA. It, it can happen. but. You know, so again, I think the key is find out what your client wants. Do they wanna litigate? Do they wanna stay on the job? Often that can be what they want. And, you know, so that would be my critical advice is to let your client lead.
1: LaDonna, your advice?
6: I would say if you're going to get into the field of representing women like myself, put yourself in their shoes. And if you're a man and you cannot do that, put yourself in your daughter's shoes. Think about your daughter, think about your wife, how they would feel going to these places, experiencing this on a daily basis. What did this mean to them? How will this affect them in the future? And fight like hell for them. Use every law you know and fight like hell for them. Everyone does not have a Golden gold Award. No one has a red carpet. All I have is Elizabeth (laughs) Saylor. I gotta make it work <laughs> and she's making it work for me and that's all I can say is fight for he- like hell, go down swinging. Thank you. Thank you so much everyone.
7: Hi. Good morning. Uh, I'm Carmelin P. Malalis. I'm the Chair and Commissioner for the New York City Commission on Human Rights. It's really, really wonderful to be with you this morning for this program. I am fighting a head cold, but I thought what better way to be energized on a Monday than going to sexual harassment and the law, a call to action for lawyers in the era of Me Too. Uh, This is really such an exciting program that the City Bar has put together, so I want to thank the City Bar, and the sponsoring committees for putting together such a great program with the different perspectives and the different panels that are represented uh, in today's program for obviously such a timely topic. You know, in the last six to seven months, I've had the great privilege of speaking at a variety of different kind of Me Too related events. Some of them have been uh, really directed at folks in the public. Some of them have been more directed at community-based organizations or faith-based institutions, uh, digital equity folks. Um, I've done a few that were directed at the legal profession and at lawyers. But, you know, when I was thinking about today's program and today, I was thinking that this is actually, I think, one of the first programs that has a definitive call to action. It's in the title of the program. So as people are going about today's program, as you're going through the workshops and the rest of the panel presentations, I encourage you to remember that, that this is not just a CLE, it is in fact a call to action. And you know, uh, I know folks have already talked about how Me Too started and, and Tarana Burke. I think a lot of you probably know that Tarana Burke started Me Too several years back in 2006 and she started it really as uh, a movement, as a way of centering the narratives of specifically girls and women of color uh, who were victims or survivors of sexual assault and violence and you know in October of 2017 just days after the first allegations of sexual harassment had come out against Harvey Weinstein, Alyssa Milano she kind of resurrected the Me Too hashtag, and she kind of reignited it and created the viral moment. I think for Me Too. Um, you know anyone anyone who's heard Tarana Burke speak about the Me Too movement. How many people here have actually seen or heard Tarana Burke speak about the Me Too movement? <laughs> she speaks about it very personally, and over the last few months, uh, she's talked about how it's been a very short an intense period of time. I've heard her talk about it when it was like two months out, when it was three months out. We're now at about six or seven months out, so it's been a really short period, and a lot of things have happened during that time. There's certainly been a lot more uh, uh, prominent folks coming out, both about their own stories, their own Me Too stories, as well as allegations of of, uh, sexual harassment and sexual assault against folks in media, in politics, in academia, in the arts, et cetera. And as I've seen uh, Trina Burke and her, her speeches or her presentations over the last few months, she is obviously, because it's been this concentrated period of time, she's obviously really been able to kind of refine her message. But I think one of the constants of her message is that Me Too is in fact a call to action. There is action required if one is hoisting up the Me Too flag. And uh, I will say at the Commission on Human Rights, at the City Commission on Human Rights, you know, two months out of that viral moment, so in December of 2017, we said, okay, how are we as the city agency responsible for for enforcing the city's anti-discrimination and anti-harassment laws, including its protections on sexual harassment. How are we responding to Me Too in this, in this call to action? What is our response? And so part of our response was to put together a citywide hearing on sexual harassment. One of the things that we noticed was that a lot of the, the narratives coming out at that particular period of time, they were not consistent with a lot of the narratives that we saw at the Commission on Human Rights that a lot of, I think, the practitioners in this room know to be the reality of everyday experiences, experiences unfortunately like LaDonna's. And we wanted to make sure that those narratives were coming out as well. So we had people testifying, some of the folks here I know also testified at the hearing, and I thank you for that, but we had advocates and workers and and other folks coming up and testifying about being in the construction industry, being in the security industry, being in the modeling industry, being in academia, being in tech, more of the narratives coming out, being uh, LGBTQ and being sexually harassed, being a low-wage worker and being sexually harassed, how it felt to be really one of the most vulnerable sectors or people prone to sexual harassment because people lived or worked at various different intersections. Uh, And I'm hoping that if you haven't already, some of you will be able to take a look at the report that came out of that hearing, because again, a lot of what is in that report was not just the recommendations and the narratives that came up during the hearing, but was also continuing this call to action. So please take a look at our website and, and take a look at the report. But if you're here today, you're answering this call too and so as you're sitting here you should be thinking what will I do as a response to me too you know this this is one and certainly won't be the last but there have been many flashpoints. I think where public rage and public anger over sexual harassment and sexual assault has come up but I really do think that this is a different point because this is this is a movement right um, how many of you were lawyers when Anita Hill testified during the Thomas hearings? Right. And so, for the folks who were lawyers during that time period, like I, I think back because I was not a lawyer at that time. But um, but I remember watching the hearings, and then I remember watching the hearings again as a lawyer, and thinking about how that should affect my practice. And I wonder for those folks who were lawyers during the time. Of those hearings how it in fact affected your practice if it did in fact affect your practice and so if you're here today with this call to action i hope that today you will consider how this program and how me too as the movement should affect should impact the work that you do regardless of where you sit regardless of who your clients are You know, and I mean you specifically, not your firms necessarily, not your organizations, but you personally, because you are the lawyer that is sitting here today. And if you will, it's still the morning, humor me for a moment, and uh, get yourself into just right now a quiet moment of zen. Close your eyes if you need to. And I want you to think to yourself, what am I going to do to address sexual harassment? How can I serve my client while making sure that other victims do not follow? How can I support the most vulnerable to sexual harassment within my practice? How can I work with employers so that even as I work with them to limit exposure, they're not allowing serial harassers to continue with impunity how can I work with businesses to see this time to see this issue as a fundamental human rights issue and not just as a business liability issue and how will I make sure again that this actually affects my practice what are the changes that will be tangible to you and the clients that you serve Now I hope that years from now when people ask you, you know, what did you do during Me Too? What was your part of this? Did you have a part of this? I hope that you think about this moment because somebody's asking you a direct question, right? I hope that you have that time to consider what changes you made, what you've done, what actions you've taken. The reality is that not everyone will be a Trana Burke. Not everyone will have the courage of LaDonna Powell. Not everyone will come up with an idea for an inclusion rider. But certainly, you are all lawyers, and you all have actions to take. We are are on the front lines as lawyers of this work. And I have to say, I hope you feel it, because I definitely feel it. It is such an exciting time to be a lawyer. Lawyers are heroes again. We are not just the butts of jokes, right? We are heroes again. We are fighting for the most vulnerable. We are fighting for the rule of law. We are fighting to make employers more responsible. We are fighting to end sexual harassment. And so I want you to continue thinking about how you respond to this call to action throughout the day. And I also want to say it's really exciting for this call to action to come from this bar association. I told Maria and Brett that whenever the city bar calls, I try to move around my schedule to answer the city bar's call to action. Because this is also an exciting place that really thinks about what it means to be a lawyer. In fact, I took a look at the mission statement of the City Bar, and the City Bar's mission statement is to equip and mobilize the legal profession to practice with excellence, to promote reform of the law and uphold the rule of law and access to justice in support of a fair society and the public interest in our community, our nation, and throughout the world. So today as you go about your day, as you follow up with your practice, as you look at your notes in the days or the months to come, continue talking to yourself, to your colleagues, and asking yourself, how are you going to work towards that? How are you really going to work towards that? How will we live up to what is expected of us as lawyers? Thank you.
8: Thank you, Commissioner. Welcome, everyone. My name is Tina Coco, and I'm the staff attorney here at the New York City Bar. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to our program, Sexual Harassment and the Law. Um, I do have some logistical announcements to make for the rest of the day. Please remember to carefully complete and sign in your CLE affirmation, noting the sessions you attended, And um, please provide that to our registration desk before you leave. That affirmation is the orange colored sheet. Also remember to complete the program evaluation form. It's your yellow colored sheet before you leave the program. And please hand that into our registration desk as well. You will receive your CLE certificate please hold on to that certificate as proof of your attendance to this program. That certificate will either be mailed or emailed to each one of you. Also note that all of Track A breakout sessions will be held in this room. Track B breakout sessions will be held in the City Bar Training Center, which is located on this floor to your right through the hallway out these doors. Our plenary luncheon will take place in the reception area that is directly outside the doors. You should have received an emailed survey. Um, If you do not have your email or if you haven't answered the survey, the link is on, on our screen and the survey results will be discussed during the luncheon plenary. And now I'd like to take a moment to thank and acknowledge our sponsoring committee, the New York City Bar Sex and the Law Committee, co-chaired by Mira Kurzer and Melissa Lee, as well as our co-sponsoring committees, the City Bar Justice Center Anti-Harassment Project, Education and the Law Committee, Enhanced Diversity in the Profession Committee, the Labor and Employment Committee, and Women in the Legal Profession Committee. I hope that you all enjoy the program, and if you do have any questions, please see me and see our staff at the registration desk.